Welcome to The Mind Killer, the rationalist brain on politics. My name is Wesley Fenza. I'm here with N.E.S. Brodsky and David Spearman, and we are going to be discussing politics of the recent past. Uh, we're going to try to put this out every two weeks. This is our first episode, so uh, anything really goes on this one. Today we're going to be talking about the news from the last you know, week or two, and we're going to be going on to our main story, which is the hammer and the dance, which is about how to deal with the coronavirus outbreak, which is dominating the news right now. Uh, as I said, I'm Wesley Fenza. I am a family attorney, and I live in New Jersey and just have a – I'm kind of a political junkie, so I read a lot about this stuff. And uh, Annie, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Inyash Brodsky. I – I don't know. I'm an accountant. I do a lot of reading online that I regurgitate in a hopefully entertaining manner. I think I'm mainly here because, like, I'm a minor celebrity in our little niche, and that can help. But, you know, I, yeah, I try to no, miss the part. Wes and I are basically just parasitizing off of Inyash's pre-existing audience. <laughs> exactly. That's definitely what's happening. You know, I'm glad I'm able to bring something of value to this podcast. And I am David Spearman. I'm an econ PhD student. Um, I live in Fairfax. I don't really like politics or news and try to avoid them whenever I can, but I'm also an anarcho-capitalist, and Wes and Vinyas are crazy leftist communists, <laughs> so I had to take part in this so that there would be a voice of reason on the show. I want to jump in real quick about that, because you said that in chat a few days ago, and like I was blown away by that, and also kind of pleasantly surprised that I'm still viewed as leftist because in my own little like subgroup here I often feel like the people the person that people suspect of being alt-right because I'm so <laughs> far to the right of my group so uh yeah that's that's neat that I'm still you know a leftist communist by some estimations yeah I think everywhere but here I'm like the crazy libertarian that wants to <laughs> you know end the public schools yeah I grew up in the bible belt I don't think – as far as I can remember, I never actually identified as a Republican, but yeah, I was – like, that probably didn't hurt or didn't help, and now I'm in George Mason's economics PhD program, and economics is by far the most right-wing academic discipline, and Mason is not the most, but probably, like – top 20 most right-wing schools in the country. And we can talk about why I think that is, because I do think that would be an interesting conversation to have, but it also might not be, like, strictly speaking on topic, so... Yeah, if we have time, we can get to that, or possibly on a slow news week. Sounds Which good. this definitely was not. No. Uh, which takes us to our uh, Week in Review. So the first story we have to discuss is the stimulus package, which was passed this week. Uh, the price tag of $2 trillion is thrown around a lot. There's a lot in there for just straight-up checks going out to people. There's expansions of uh, unemployment insurance. There's loans to businesses. 
Uh, I wanted to get your guys' take on this. What do we think of the stimulus package? I found it like pleasantly surprising that people were a lot of like not people a lot of mainstream politicians like for example Mitt freaking Romney himself were advocating a one-time universal payment like no means testing no questions asked everyone just gets a check for x amount which uh, even six months ago when Andrew Yang like you know his name was known which everyone knew he would never be president but just the fact that he's like oh yeah He's the guy that wants to give everyone a thousand dollars a month. It was like it was laughable, and I loved him, and I think it's a great idea. But in just six months, we've pivoted to like someone saying, to a major politician saying, "Hey, we should give everyone one thousand dollars, even if it's only one time, as opposed to every month." That's it's just like it's a big swing. I think the fact that there have been a lot of people the past two years pushing for universal basic income, with Yang as one of the leaders, has helped um, normalize that to the extent that. This is a thing that's even a possibility, and I'm very happy about that. All right. My brief comment is that I was I was pretty pleasantly surprised with the stimulus package bill. Um, I think this is it's sort of amazing that something this non-terrible was able to come out of the current Congress. Uh, I think that you know a lot of what what's basically happened here is the government has ordered the economy to shut down for a couple of months. And what they're doing is stepping in, um, providing money to businesses to make up for that and providing money to individuals who are out of a job. I think by far the the most important part of this bill is the uh, unemployment expansion. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who are out of work. Uh, unemployment insurance does not cover uh, most of a person's paycheck. But now that this bill is passed, unemployment will cover um, up to 100 percent of people's lost wages for most people. Uh, so I think that is probably the biggest uh, thing. Good thing they did to stabilize the economy. And, you know, they're they're putting out a lot of money for businesses because a lot of businesses losing money, too. So hopefully that manages to stabilize the economy and we can get through this. Oh, I, I will say that like in the face of a government mandating that people not work, them also giving people money so they don't starve is good. <laughs> if, if you take those two together. Yeah. And, uh, well, I, I, uh, national review came out in favor of the stimulus package. So I figure it can't be too terrible if, uh, it's something that the liberals love and it's something national review is a fan of. But we can go over to David to hear how terrible it actually is. Okay. Yes, it is actually terrible. Uh, All right. Enlighten describe us. Describe yourselves as pleasantly surprised. And I have to say, I sympathize with neither of those <laughs> characterizations. This was not the tiniest bit surprising, nor was it particularly pleasant. So this is why David's on the show, people. Two trillion dollar price tag. There are about three and a quarter hundred thousand Americans. If two trillion dollars was given directly to those three and a quarter hundred thousand Americans, each American would be getting a check for six million dollars and change. Wait, what? It, there's not 325,000, there's yeah, 325 yeah. million. There's 325 uh, million. Sorry. Those were some important zeros. Yes. But still, $6,000 in change. Okay. 
The check that people will be getting that is not means tested or anything will be much less than six thousand dollars. Yeah. Most of the money is going to like even even accounting for the unemployment insurance, which is a pretty good thing, I think, especially considering that it is the government that's mandating people not work. Um, it'll be less than six thousand dollars per American. Most of that money is going to some form or another of corporate welfare. I hate corporate welfare because I am a grouchy anarchist who has to be mad at both the left and the right at all times, or I'm pretty sure I die. <laughs> uh, so, basically, what I saw with his stimulus thing was it was an excuse for both sides to do all the wish list spending that they wanted to do anyway. They did not update on the coronavirus happening at all vis-a-vis -vis their policy desires. They just saw an opportunity to hit the do something button really, really hard over and over again, and they jumped at it. Well, and I, I like agree with you in all those respects, but if they've mandated the economy shut down for two months, do you think the alternative of them not giving money is better or that they should have all made it direct payments? So I think if the government is in the business of taking money from some people and giving it to other people, it should be in the form of direct payments. And uh, basically... If I'm paying for my government services, I want them to actually work. Yeah. So if so, yes, I think that given that we're shutting down the economy, which we've apparently decided we're going to do because the FDA and CDC screwed up the testing rollout so badly that they basically... It would be exaggerating to say they made the pandemic out of whole cloth, but... They made it much worse like, than it had to be. Yes. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And so, given that, that the reason we're in this trouble is because the government screwed up, and then it told everyone that they weren't allowed to work anymore. Yeah, giving people direct transfers is the best way to do it. So and this David. stimulus package is not that. All right. So you would think no money for business at all. So that's a little bit of a dilemma because uh, there's this thing that, so uh, I'm currently taking industrial organization taught by Tyler Cowen. And there's this thing in industrial organization called the organizational capital which is basically the idea that there are um, basically in the in the you could say in the uh, 12 years since the housing crisis or you could say in the past 12 million thousand yeah thousand years of human civilization there has been work that's put into matching workers with firms. And um, 
And the theory is before the shutdown, workers were pretty well matched with firms. And if we have all the like restaurants and whatever in this area closed down, then all of that uh, organizational capital basically goes up in smoke. So there is an argument for um, for doing some sorts of bailouts, especially if you do uh, what uh, Nancy Pelosi wanted to do, where you mandate keeping a certain amount of payroll in order to get the bailout money. But there's also the argument that, like, pandemics and sickness in general are just a thing that happens and businesses that respond better or worse to those like that's relevant economic information that should be captured by the bad ones going out of business so so basically if the if economic and fiscal policy was being run by a bunch of nerds locked in a room with no political incentive, then there would definitely be room for them to make improvements over the status quo. But that's not the world we're living in, clearly. So the fact that I have no confidence whatsoever in anyone in Washington actually being able to make that trade-off in anything remotely like a reasonable manner means I'll probably just default to the no, no social, no corporate welfare ever period. Even though strictly speaking, there is an economic case to be made there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, my view on this is that, you know, this is a bit of a black swan event. Uh, And it's not something that I would have expected businesses to plan for. And I don't think it's a sign of poor management if they don't have enough cash reserves or whatever it is they need to get through this crisis. Um, So I'm, you know, I'm not really partial to the argument that they should, you know, corporate Darwinism here that only the strong survive. Um, I'm sure. I have no doubt in my mind that this money will be thrown around in horrible ways that make us all sick to our stomach. Um, But when I say I was pleasantly surprised, I just mean I expected it to be much worse, Um, that this looks like it is something that actually has a chance of working. Um, And that is good to see, Uh, but probably because my expectations for Congress are so very low. I got a question for David because I was not expecting you to be the um, strongly anti-business one in this case. Uh, It seems that to, well, to use the uh, rationalist favorite um, metaphor for this, Moloch Moloch, uh, has exerted a lot of influence on our business practices over the past few decades. And there's been sort of a Malachian race to make things as tight and efficient as possible that uh, retail stores no longer have large, expensive warehouses where they have a month of inventory. Everything is done in just-in-time shipping where inventory arrives maybe a day before it's expected to be sold at all times from international uh, sources. And if any business has like even two weeks of payroll in the bank, that is a huge amount of capital, which they are not using to expand and grow. And so they will be left behind by businesses that 
do use all their capital to expand and grow and instead take overnight paper uh, to meet their payroll every week, isn't if if we expected all businesses to have stocks on hand and to have a month of payroll in the bank and so forth, wouldn't the expansion of the economy slow like greatly to the point that a generation from now people would be much worse off than they would have been otherwise? Uh, so real quick, should you define Moloch and Molochian? Oh, sure. Um, it comes from a um, post by Scott Alexander at Slate Star Codex. Uh, Moloch is the god of... Um, what, what is it? Uh, the god of forces, competitive forces, forcing everything into what we would consider bad circumstances because it, it is more competitive that way. Uh, the... The example so, I go to um, to make this most emotionally valent to people is that if you were to remove your need for sleep, that would be great. You could do a lot more things with your time and everyone would be motivated to do that. But then, you know, also your need for human companionship is something that takes away from time you could be productive. So then you can remove that from your brain so you can be more competitive and you keep stripping things away and the people who don't strip those away can no longer be competitive in the economy. They can't afford to feed themselves. So eventually all we're left with is humans who live just to work and don't feel the sorts of joys and happinesses we do because otherwise you can't compete with the people who have done that and you die. Yeah. So, uh, the, my like back of the envelope explanation is Moloch is basically the evil cousin of, Adam Smith's Invisible Hand. Um, Adam Smith wrote in The Wealth of Nations, it is not from the medambulance of the butcher, the baker, or the brewer that you get your supper, but rather from their own self-regard. They are moved by an invisible hand to, I'm ashamed that I don't have this memorized. All right, I found the quote. Every individual neither intends to promote the public interest, nor knows how much he is promoting it. He intends only his own security. And by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be of the greatest value, he intends only his own gain. And he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Yeah. So uh, basically the idea is people pursuing their own self-interest end up promoting a social interest. Greed um, is good. I have feelings about that, which I won't go into because this digression has gone on more than long enough. And Moloch is basically the opposite of that, where um, people pursuing their own self-interest instead um, do harm to their society or um, in pursuing one aspect of their self-interest, they neglect other aspects. Yeah, that's how I would explain Moloch, and I can't remember what your actual question pertaining to Moloch was. Uh, the question was that if businesses had payroll saved up and had warehouses of stock, rather than having everything being so cutthroat just in time and taking credit to make payroll, then the economy would be expanding at a much slower rate to the point where our descendants would be much worse off than they would be otherwise if we didn't keep everything moving along at a like rocket fuel pace. Doesn't that mean that there will be times when shocks like this happen to the system? And since we want things to be lean, trim and efficient, we are very fragile to this sort of thing. And we need some sort of insurer of last resort, like the federal government to bail everyone out for a few months. So when I look at the 
the institutions that have affected this problem. By far the most effective ones have been private businesses. Like, if it wasn't for Skype and Amazon and um, and a bunch of private businesses that are keeping things more or less working, we would be pretty much totally hosed. Like, it would look, it would be the Spanish flu all over again. So, yes, the government um, is doing what the government always does, which is throwing around rule books and bags of money more or less at random, and if you're lucky, you catch a bag of money and you're okay, and if you're unlucky, you get hit in the head with a rule book and die of coronavirus. Right, but a lot of people um, can't make rent right now because they're out of work, and they're out of work because their employers don't keep, uh, you know, a month of payroll in the bank, and so the government has to do this to keep those people making their rent payments, right? Well, and I think the larger yeah. issue is that if companies did do that, they would be outcompeted by other companies exactly. who were able to move faster and thus would be eliminated from the market. Yeah, so... So what's a company but, supposed so to do? Point, so the point I was getting at, which is maybe not quite the point you were getting at, was just that there's... No, like, again, going back to the room full of nerds, if the government was capably run, then, of course, there's a role for it as a lender of last resort in times of major crisis and blah, blah, blah. But since the government can't really be relied on to be capably run, like, it's not obvious to me that it's worth it, uh, both economically and humanely, to have a lender of last resort that also makes it illegal to um, to fix the faulty coronavirus tests that they sent out. That is a good point, and I completely agree with you. But given the fact that the Congress that passes the stimulus bill is somewhat decoupled from the CDC and FDC and how they fucked up the past few months, this is a better solution than... This is the best we could have hoped for, and it's better that they did this stimulus than that they did nothing, maybe? Yeah, I'm not really going to argue with that. Okay. Um, I, I'm more thinking in terms of, like, are the lessons that we're going to take away from this government good because they did the stimulus, or government bad because they fucked up the testing in the crucial few weeks and which lesson should we take away from that uh this is a bayesian rationalist show so in bayesian terms should the sum total of the government's response to coronavirus update us in favor of government or against government or should it update us in favor of the legislature but against the executive branch or in favor of the um, in favor of the um, the branches of government laid out in the Constitution and against the uh, administrative state, and all of those questions seem like they have pretty obvious answers to me, um, namely. Uh, 
the legislature is probably better than the executive, all things considered. All things considered, the executive and the legislature are are the uh, constitutional branches of government, for lack of a better word, are better than the um, than the regulatory state, and still, all total, government's pretty bad. All right. Well, I have a related story for you from this week uh, about Rio de Janeiro, oh, where oh. the government was seemingly dropping the ball, not ordering any kind of uh, restrictions, social distancing, anything like that. And so uh, it appears that the criminal gangs have stepped in to mandate social distancing and have put out press releases to, to encourage people to stay in and are roaming the streets, uh, basically forcing people to stay inside. Um, so I put this in here for you, David, because I feel like this is a, a real story about uh, private actors stepping in when government fails. Yeah, I do wish that these stories could on occasion feature people who aren't organized criminals, but <laughs> yes. I think organized criminals have a distinct advantage in this realm because they're already organized, whereas most people aren't. Yeah, and they're, they also, uh, like the government, have a comparative advantage in acts of violence. Indeed. Yeah. Because taxation uh, is theft. Yes, I don't, I don't know who could really... Uh, <laughs> I don't know who else could really enforce those kind of restrictions other than uh, criminal gangs. I, All right. I, 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 I don't know. I kind of like this. It strikes me as the sort of heroic responsibility that... Um, people who have to go forward and take bold steps regardless of their governance and competence should be doing. So on the one hand, this is kind of awesome. On the other hand, you know, organized crime and violence are never things I am a fan of. So it kind of sucks that there's this uh, breakdown in the government where literally violent gangs have had to step in where the government is failing. That is definitely not an ideal society to live in, but... Uh, yes, this is in no way a uh, good outcome. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's a better outcome than if the organized gangs hadn't stepped in, which is odd yeah. thing to say. Indeed. All right, so next story is our president <laughs> has been somewhat waffling on how long these restrictions are going to be in place. Uh, earlier this week... He was talking about trying to get everything reopened by Easter, which is on April 12th. Uh, just yesterday, he seemed to walk that back and announced that restrictions would be kept in place until April 30th. Um, what do you guys think? Do you have any estimates for how long these restrictions are actually going to have to be in place? Okay, uh, I'll go, I guess. I think April 30th is a good day to shoot for. It's far enough away in the future that... Um, things might be looking better, and it's close enough that we have some hope. Um, I don't know how realistic it's going to be, and I think it's going to differ by locality, to be honest. Uh, but having April 30th as a temporary goal is at least a good place to be shooting for, I think, in that there's a chance we might be over the hump by that point and know it, and then we can reassess better. Yeah, I think uh, saying that they'll be in place at least until April 30th is a good move. Yeah. I don't think there's any way that we're actually going to be able to lift any restrictions by then. Um, from the graphs I've been looking at, it looks like 
infections and deaths are going to peak sometime in April. So by April 30th, we should have a better idea. We should be on the downswing, but uh, not it should not be over by then by any means. Oh, I'm not an epidemiologist. <laughs> I'm the <laughs> other right. academic discipline that starts with an E. Um, yeah, I, personally, I would like to see the uh, end dates being set by something like infection rates or new infection rates or something like that. Uh, like trying to pin it to a date just seems kind of weird and arbitrary. Like if it turns out this is way less of a problem than we thought, which it won't, but if it did and it turns out we could get back to work tomorrow, then great, let's do that. And if we need to like stay in lockdown until next year, then let's do that. But like saying, oh, it'll be done by this date seems like it, it seems like we have a model of the virus as like checking their calendars and scheduling appointments appointments elsewhere after April 30th. And that's just not how it works. So let's set our uh, let's set our objective function by like what we actually want to optimize for and not something we think is kind of sort of related. All right. Fair enough. Uh, so, so moving on, there was one non coronavirus story this week, um, yeah. but it's also terrible. Um, <laughs> it's that, uh, yes, uh, Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee hasn't quite won yet, but it's uh, certainly looking that way was accused of sexual assault. Uh, by a former staffer. Uh, the accusations are that it took place in 1993. And uh, a lot of Bernie people are saying, you know, this is why we didn't want Joe Biden. He was obviously yeah, a really creepy dude, and it was only a matter of time until this, these accusations came out. Biden's denying it. Um, and a lot of uh, people are claiming that the media is ignoring the story. So there's a lot going on on all sides in that one. Have you guys seen the story? I have not. Uh, yes, I did see it. Do you have thoughts? I am worried that the new future of American politics on the other side of coronavirus will be who can find the most credible sounding person willing to accuse the other side of rape. And that sounds like hell. Well, I think uh, that may be the case on the left. Um, on the right, at least in terms of presidential politics, you know, Donald Trump brags about sexually assaulting women. Uh, so I feel like with him, at least that ship has sailed. People know him. They know what he's about. And at least, you know, 46 percent of the country doesn't care. And that's all he really needs. Yeah, I mean, so Donald Trump is a special case because literally everyone who's seen him knows that he hasn't seen his dick in the last 20 years, let alone used it. But that's a bit of a moot point. I kind of agree with David in that a lot of politics on the left lately has been, you know, who can we how can we best uh, assassinate someone with uh, charges of sexual misconduct? And so I'm assuming until that gets uh, shaken out. Most of our um, most of the left's 
politicians are going to be either women or gay people or well even gay people can get accused of it uh they'll mostly be women or people who are like so old and non-sexual that it's not really uh considered an issue for them like i don't think those people exist i think bernie sanders you'd have a very hard time making anything stick to him because he's just like i'm an old jew i've never had sex in my life and i don't think it's fair for anyone to imply that i have I think if an accusation came out against Bernie Sanders, it would find just as much traction as as it would against anyone else. Yeah. Plus, um, I I don't entirely agree that this is exclusively uh, or it will be exclusively a thing on the left because and this will be this will sound like a total tangent, but I promise I'll bring it back. Um, So. Uh, James Gunn, I think was his name, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, who got canceled. Yeah, right. Like, my understanding is that it's now pretty well established that that was uh, 4chan, I think, op? Is that what they call it? Uh, But anyway, basically, like, there are groups like 4chan and 8chan and other assorted shitheels that are reading the leftist... Um, identitarian playbook and willing to use it. So, like, it wouldn't be terribly surprising to me if if there was a credible uh, Republican contender to Trump that someone would have cooked up some kind of rape, rape accusation against them because, like, there's a certain animal cunning to the to the Trump political machine. And I'm quite certain that they looked at things like the Kavanaugh hearings and identified that as, uh, as a viable and effective strategy. Yeah, that's certainly possible. I want to push back a little bit on the idea that these accusations are getting cooked up. Um, by all accounts, these are, I should have, uh, I should have, I thought about, um, I thought about um, of um, saying this up front and then forgot to, and I am sorry about that. I have not looked at the accusations at all. I have looked at none of the evidence. I have no idea how credible they are. It's very possible that it is actually a, a um, honest and truthful accusation, and if so, it's very serious. Yeah, The so the, it certainly is uh, we are in danger of having that be used as a tactic in the future, as people have seen how effective it can be. Um, I think there were some right-wingers who were caught trying to pay women to say they were uh, assaulted by some left-wing politician. I forget who it was. It might have been Biden, um, but it, it might have been somebody else. And they were, you know, they were pretty ridiculous people and got caught immediately. Um, but we are, you know, that certainly could be, a tactic used in the future. Um, but I haven't seen any prominent accusations that, you know, really strike me as made up out of whole cloth. The problem is, especially with this accusation, is that it it was from 1993, which is 27 years ago. Why is that a problem? Well, that is it's a problem because I don't trust people's memories from last week. And I think all the studies people have done on human memory 
ago that every time we remember something, we overwrite it with a new thing that happened. And if you're going back 27 years, I have, you know, I think the most likely thing is what this woman is describing is exactly what she remembers. And when Joe Biden says that didn't happen, that's exactly what he remembers, because it's just so long ago. You know, you have this idea that you keep rewriting in your brain and both of them, I'm sure, have been rewriting it for that long that who how could you even begin to sort out what is actual memory uh and what is this this overwriting process yeah i mean that was going to be my primary comment on this too was that i just i don't really want to make much of a comment because i have no idea and it's it's these sorts of stories that make me sometimes wish we did live in a panopticon where at any point you could go back and be like, no, look, see, the cameras show exactly what was happening at this moment, and it wasn't what is being claimed. Uh, but of course, that comes with lots of nightmares of its own. Um, I just, I don't know. Like, it's a serious accusation, and it's a terrible thing. And there's, is there any way to know or to tell? Yeah. The I other issue. I just want to stay out of entirely because this is beyond me or beyond any way I know to address reality or work through things okay so the other issue with it being 27 years ago mm-hmm. is that what if it is true what is that what does that mean about joe biden um you know does it mean he needs to be punished uh does it mean he's unfit for the presidency um what, was, what what do we do well if it was true i would definitely think both those things, that he does need to be punished and he is unfit for the presidency unless it was somehow demonstrated that he has massively reformed and changed since then. Because a person who does that sort of thing is not someone that I want to trust with any amount of power and certainly not someone to represent uh, me and the American public at large. All right, fair enough. So we we do have something like that it's called the statute of limitations and i like i get where you're coming from but i also kind of disagree like if put it this way if i was getting into a plane uh which i i am loath to make a suicide joke in these times but if i was getting onto a plane um which would you rather learn that the pilot was one of the best pilots in the world, and there was essentially no chance of him crashing the plane, and he was also a rapist, or that he was a priest, one of the most moral people in existence, and knew absolutely nothing about flying a plane. Well, I would want the pilot arrested and then get a different pilot. Okay, yeah, but that that's that's weaseling out of the moral dilemma I'm trying to set up. My point is that the the presidency is a at the end of the day, it's a technical position similar to a pilot or an electrician or something like that. And the technology that they're supposed to be running is the United States of America. And past a certain point, like, I am okay accepting someone who's a bit of a scumbag in their personal life as long as they're not going to blow everything up. 
And sometimes you do get nice, convenient, easy cases like Donald Trump, who's both immoral and incompetent. But if I had to choose between one of those two, I think I'd take the competent over the moral. If I was forced to make that choice, maybe. But I think that the president is not just a technical position. It's also sort of a, in the American cultural um, myth, cultural religion, he's sort of the, like, the founding, the father of the country, right? He's, he's a moral leader as well, in some sense. And as a representative of the people and the zeitgeist, he can't be a complete monster. I, I, I'm more on uh, so from, Inyash's side here. So but. I'm also on Inyash's side from a Machiavellian sense that the president shouldn't be seen to be a monster. But the president actually being a monster, as long as he's good at his job, and part of him being good at his job is it doesn't come out that he's a monster, it, it, it's at the very least not obvious to me. I don't want the president to be a monster because now I think being a monster is a part, you know, does affect your suitability for the office. You know, I, I think the the allegations are basically an abuse of power, um, and I think when somebody is shown to abuse power, and the last thing you want to do is give them more power, and there's nobody more powerful than the president of the United States, at least on paper. Uh, my issue is more with, the, the, with how long ago it was. Is I know that this is would be reflective of his current character. Uh, you know, he's 27 years is a long time, and unless there's more accusations that come out that of this kind of abuse of power, you know, if if that's all, if he only ever did it once, that's not really showing that he's a danger currently. Um, you know, the thing you are worried about is that you know that's just the tip of the iceberg that this is something he's been doing the whole time and if that came out i think that would be much more uh, indicative of what kind of president he'd be all right all right <laughs> all right so moving on uh to our main story which is the hammer and the dance now this is a it was a medium post put up by thomas poyo and i'm not sure exactly what his qualifications were but it was a multidisciplinary team that met together to to look at what was going on with the virus, what other countries were doing, what the leading epidemiologists were saying, and really synthesize all this into a single recommendation. And the recommendation is a two-step process. Um, the first they're calling the hammer, which is a suppression stat strategy, which is where you lock down everything, do heavy social distancing. Um, there's do no non-essential retail school work, anything like that. Basically what we're doing over here on the East Coast and in a lot of cities. Um, and then the second part of the strategy is once you have the infection rate down to less than one per person, you do what they're calling the dance where you try to keep it there. And you can lift the most economically ruinous restrictions and just keep the ones that are the most effective that also don't kill your economy. And there, the the main thing that they're saying in this is that the hammer really only needs to last three to seven weeks if we do it right. Um, and this was the first article I saw that actually gave me a bit of hope um, that showed an actual way out of this. Uh, that doesn't result in millions dead or the economy completely trashed. So have you guys looked at this, and what are your thoughts about it? I have looked at it, 
and it seems plausible, but I also did a quick Google, and this guy is not a doctor or an epidemiologist, so I'm not sure I want to be the person who builds my life around every plausible-sounding rando I happen to come across on Medium. (laughs) So this is a terrible thing to do for a podcast, but I'm doing like a sort of weird, awkward shrug thing right now. If you were in the room with me, it would be very funny. All right. Well, this is something that has been in, in endorsed by, you know, a number of doctors um, and epidemiologists. So it's not, it's not just a guy shooting his mouth off. I also read it in theory. I think it like, it looks good. The hammer suppression part is kind of what we're doing now, except more intense, right? Where everyone is, much more locked down than we actually are in lots, many parts of the country. Um, well, yeah, the hammer is like what we're doing here. I'm in South Jersey. Um, we're doing basically everything that's been recommended, but I know a lot of parts of the country aren't. Yeah. And the, I mean, obviously that we're hoping that's going to work. So that's what we're doing right now. The dance part is the more interesting part where he says after, after that initial suppression part, we can, lift some restrictions and then like increase restrictions and decrease restrictions as needed to keep the infection rate within tolerable limits. Uh, I don't, I don't know exactly how that would work, especially with the fact that there seems to be a one to two week lag between changing how restricted things people are and it actually having an effect on things. Like how well, would I you think, know? That? I think you would, uh, you would have to embrace the lag. Um, so, you know, if things got bad, they would be bad for two weeks, but you could tighten restrictions and then two weeks later they could get better. Um, but the idea is, is the infection rate, you know, the, the tolerable limit is below one. You just want to keep it below one because above one, you get exponential growth below one. You don't. Right. But once Uh, you know that it's above one again, at that point, are things rocketing too fast? And it's more like a series of punctuated hammer blows as opposed to a, a dance, which sounds much more gentle. Well, it it depends how far above one it goes. So if you get too far above one, you're getting, you know, thousands of new infections per per person who has it. Um, but if it's just a little bit above one, you know, one person maybe infects over two weeks, you know, anywhere between one other person and, uh, you know, 10,000. So it really depends on how far it ticks up. And the idea is to loosen restrictions gradually so you can kind of see if it goes back up. Okay. And the, the, the thing that I think lends some credence to this idea is that other countries have been able to, to, lo- to, to function without a lot of these restrictions, um, most notably South Korea and Singapore are able to they they're not really doing the heavy social distancing their economy's going along most of their businesses are open and what they've gotten by is with is testing for one they have these massive aggressive testing apparatus that is what we're sorely missing here Um, and then once they are getting the tests anything that comes back positive that that person is quarantined and they're doing aggressive contract tracing where they you know you ask the person okay tell me everyone you come into contact with in the last two weeks they go get those people and they isolate them um they don't do a full quarantine i don't believe but i think they are mandating that they stay home 
um, which is basically what we're doing now with everybody. Um, so that doesn't seem that, you know, that sort of thing doesn't seem that heavy handed. And it does have uh, it does seemingly have some real results behind it. So there is a government institution that is in charge of, in theory, overseeing a phenomenon that's subject to long and variable lags. The long and variable lags, of course, refers to the macroeconomic effects of um, of fiscal policy. The institution is the Fed. It's fine. Uh, but we also kind of had this huge, refl- huge recession back when they tried to, like, actually do stuff so yeah like this does seem plausible but we keep getting back to like i don't think our government is competent enough to actually do this yeah i don't have a lot of confidence in the ability to really do the dance part around one i think if if this works it just it it will be because the 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 testing, quarantining, and contact tracing um, just work, and that gets it below one. If we have to do more than that, I don't really have confidence in the government to reasonably you know, look at this and institute what are the reasonable measures beyond that. I think if those three don't work, then uh, we're probably screwed. I don't think our government's up to the task, but we can hope. Yeah, I I mean, it sounds good. Again, my my – like David said, my main concern is that the point of failure here is the government, and so far they have not been covering themselves with glory. Yeah, but I really think the thing that is going to change things for the United States is testing. If we can get large-scale testing, then I think that alleviates a lot of the burden, because right now you know, everyone's isolated because nobody knows who has the disease. Um, and if you know, it was easier to tell, you know, there was a, uh, a story this week that somebody developed a test where you can it takes five minutes um, and they're they're trying to make 50,000 of them in the next week. So, you know, and I'm sure lots of other companies are working on this. The question there is like, has the FDA uh, eased up the restrictions on this sort of thing so that this person and or these businesses can, in fact, start making these tests because they, they have. OK, they have. It has been it was fast tracked at the FDA and has been approved. Oh, good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they've, they've corrected some of their earlier bungling. Um, but I guess I do not want to let the FDA off the hook here because it is largely their fault. We don't already have the testing. Yeah, I so I have a question which is going to seem like a tangent but it's not do any of you know people uh personally who suspect that they have or have had coronavirus no i do not all right i know at least two people one of them being my mother uh and she she was in a room with someone who didn't have symptoms at the time but later on came down with basically what looks like all the uh covid19 symptoms but again, no testing because tests weren't available at the time. And a few days later, she caught it. And it was, in terms of like what we've been hearing in the news, extremely mild. Uh, in terms of her life, it was pretty bad. There was a day where she was more or less bedridden. Uh, she had to have food brought to her and all that and was very sore. Uh, but it, after a day, she was getting better. And after about three days had passed, and there was never any like trouble breathing, right? So 
In the grand scheme of things, I believe this is what we would call a very mild case of COVID-19. Uh, and again, no testing done, so can't say for sure that was it, but the timing lined up and all the symptoms were right, so that's what the assumption is. Um, this, I hate to, you know, update on anecdotes, but uh, this kind of, when yesterday I saw Robin Hansen uh, pushing his idea that initial viral load really makes a big difference as to how severe your symptoms will be, which is, I mean, that's known about all diseases forever, but uh, he is sort of suggesting that perhaps healthier people should be exposed to extremely uh, small viral loads um, so that they can get their initial immunization, get their initial infection out of the way and be available to keep society running when other people get it. Uh, this seems like a not terrible plan B, at least at first blush, uh, especially knowing someone who appears to have survived without needing any hospital stay. What, what do you guys have thoughts on this? So my, so my understanding, which I am not an epidemiologist and, um, uh, so take this with a grain of salt. I am not up to date on the latest reports, but my understanding is that there is actually a, a, a reinfection possibility with COVID-19. Um, and Robin's proposal is not unreasonable if you assume a reinfection rate of zero. I've heard... And I've heard at least some speculation, uh, a fair bit of speculation, that it may have just been that there was false negatives when they had initial recoveries. But again, I don't know. It could be reinfection. This is some, one of those things that last I heard is could go either way still. Yeah, from yeah. what I've been hearing, nobody nobody really knows. Yeah, I mean, the, the notion of deliberately infecting people with a disease is kind of morally repugnant to me. So I'm I really, really do not want to bite that bullet unless we're absolutely sure that it will work like we expect it to. And so just from my admittedly limited understanding, we have not yet reached the threshold of evidence that I'd want to see before I'd be even a little bit comfortable with it. All right. Well, if you're interested in this topic, Robin Hansen and Zvi Moskowitz had a debate on this exact topic yesterday. Um, so we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Is, do either of you put credence in the idea that eventually 75% of all Americans are going to get this anyway? Yes. Well, because if, if we do believe that, then I think it'd be just with a utilitarian calculus, much better to be infected with the lightest, least damaging uh, viral load possible, in which case it would be kind of a, you know, a good idea, if not a duty, to help people be infected slowly in waves of the smallest viral load there can be, so they don't actually have to go to the hospital and overwhelm the system if they were to catch it, you know, coincidentally out in the wild from someone else at a random time and maybe have get much worse symptoms. Yes, I think if your assumption is that sure, people are... Unless there's a reinfection rate, in which right. case you infect them, they're miserable for a couple of days, and then a couple weeks later, they get the real thing, and you've made them miserable for a couple of days for no benefit. Right. So, yeah, I think you're relying on two different assumptions. One is the no infection, and the other is that 75% of people will get it. 
Um, I think that's a distinct possibility, but only if we screw this up pretty bad. Okay. Um, not to say we won't, but I don't think we're quite there yet where we need to be um, acting as if that's the case. Okay. So, Anyash, you had a question about if there have been any cuts to occupation licensing or regulations. Yeah. Um, have you heard anything about that? I have, actually. Uh, I sort of know someone online who is right now going through the process of becoming a registered nurse, and I forget what state he was in, but it sounds like that state has eased their restrictions on uh, on licensing to make it easier. Uh, nurses can get through it faster. That's good to hear. David, I'm sure you have opinions about occupational licensing. I have opinions about occupational licensing. <laughs> I haven't looked specifically into if and how they're being eased up on in this scenario and uh, whether and so I don't have any real opinion on whether I expect those to be permanent. I don't have much hope that they'd be permanent, but like I really hope they would like this would be one of the silver linings if this were to become the case and people were to see hey, some of these regulations are kind of bullshit and we should ease up on them because we can have more nurses and cheaper health care. Yeah, I don't think uh, you're going to find any disagreement here. And Eniash's other question was about hoarding. <laughs> are people yeah. doing it and are they evil? Yes and no. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is evil and no, it is not happening? Oh, no, sorry. The opposite. No, it is not evil. Yes, it is happening. Okay, I, could, I, I would like to... Like quickly, I was just writing up a blog post about this, which is something I haven't done in a long time. So I'm going to quickly hit what I was going to say there. But like hoarding basically drastically increases the price of something quickly, right? No. No. Hoarding is a response to the price of something drastically increasing quickly. Uh, you have the causality basically backwards there. Okay. Uh, yeah. And there's two types of hoarding, I think. There's hoarding for personal use, where you're worried that uh, because there's a scarcity in something, there isn't going to be enough available, so you just grab up as much as possible. And then there's the hoarding for reselling, where you're doing the same thing, but you, you get way more than you need uh, in the hopes that you can resell it at a higher price once everyone realizes that there's the shortage. Okay, let me rephrase the question then, because I used the wrong word. What I meant to say was emergency pricing, which some people refer to as gouging, is it evil? And uh, by that, I mean, like, the cost... When I go to Costco, uh, I, I get my toilet paper in bulk at Costco. I basically buy it once every four to five months because one of their standard packages is freaking huge. And uh, when this crisis hit, I still had, like, a good six or more weeks of toilet paper saved up. And if the prices were getting really high... I would have been more than willing to go online and sell half of that uh, because I I think that within three weeks, we probably have more toilet paper back on the shelves. And, you know, maybe I get screwed by that and I'm stuck using something else, but uh, that's a risk I'm willing to take for enough profit. And I don't think it's that big a risk. And also um, in the same, in the same vein, uh, when the prices of, of, hand sanitizer and and face masks went up people started substituting like hand there's a bunch of etsy sites now about how to hand sew your own uh fabric face masks and all of these uh breweries and distilleries that were making uh vodka or other things are switching into making them into hand sanitizer and i think all these are things that like 
as the price of something rises, the more expensive substitutes suddenly become uh, desirable. Like price is a signal, right? So when something is in high demand and the price goes up, that's generally a good thing. Or am I completely wrong here? Like why, why are there all these laws about like, you can never increase the price of something, especially in an emergency when people need it badly? No, you're completely right. Price gouging laws are dumb laws for idiots. Uh, <laughs> prices are signals wrapped in incentives. Messing with the price mechanism is a bad idea. Uh, the reason why people were buying dozens and dozens of masks instead of leaving them for medical professionals was because the price didn't rise. So the resources were allocated to whoever happened to get to them first and not to their highest value usage. Right. Price gouging is good. Uh, price gouging laws exist because people are idiots. And we should start calling it emergency pricing in order to. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I, on, on the one hand, I mean, I kind of see like if you're the guy who shows up to the store and buys the entire shelf out of food and everyone else in town is like, hey, I need to eat dinner tonight, too. And you're like, well, looks like you're going to be paying me a hundred dollars. I think that's a problem. But I also think that, you know, that's why there's things like a, neighbor, a band of angry neighbors with baseball bats. You know, they, I don't advocate violence, but I think there's uh, there's other ways to handle that sort of thing. And that there's a reason it doesn't happen. And um, I don't know. It kind of sounds like you're advocating violence. I, <laughs> so. It sounds like violence on the surface, but it's more like, you know, social pressure and incentives from your, the people who you're going to be screwing, right? So the thing is, if you keep the price of hand sanitizer at whatever it was, like $1 a bottle, then there's no incentive for the breweries to switch from vodka to hand sanitizer. Yeah. Because we're assuming that the price of vodka isn't changed by the epidemic, so if the price of hand sanitizer doesn't change, then the calculus from the point of view of the of the distillery hasn't changed at all. So if we want the distillery to change their behavior, we need to change the incentive structure, which means we need the price of hand sanitizer to rise. And I will say it's been kind of inspiring in the good news section of this program how many uh, distilleries have switched over to making hand sanitizer purely for, you know, altruistic reasons, although I'm sure Wes would disagree that this is altruistic, and uh, often <laughs> giving away uh, the hand sanitizer to hospitals and stuff just because they want to see society, you know, not die. But I think that's not, I mean, that's that's good and all, but it, it would get even more people in the game if the price were to rise more and we didn't have to depend on people's charity. I think we can all agree that it's praiseworthy behavior. So good job, <laughs> corporations. Who yeah. are providing hand sanitizer at cost, or uh, or less than that? Yeah, agreed. All right, so we're moving on to political implications. Um, one of the things that some people may have noticed, some people have not, is that Trump's approval rating is rising. Jesus. Uh, on March twenty, on March twelfth, he was fifty three percent disapproved to forty two percent approve. Um, the last time I checked, which was March 28th, it was 50% disapproved to 46% uh, approve. Um, and it's been, it was a pretty steady uptick for the past week or two. Um, I am completely baffled by this because by, by all accounts, and this is probably my liberal communist bubble that I'm in, 
Um, but everything I've been seeing is how poorly the federal government has been handling this, how they wasted six weeks um, when we could have been developing testing, approving um, new tests and getting ventilators built. Um, we could have been preparing for this whole thing. We could have done the South Korea strategy, which didn't require shutting down the economy. Um, things would be much better if this was handled well. And yet people are um, ap- approving of Trump in higher numbers. I- I'm hoping that this is just a rally around the flag thing um, and that once the, the acute crisis is over, people will come to their senses. But I don't know. Uh, yeah, you basically said everything I was going to say. I-, I remember his tweets about like, you know, oh, this is just a handful of cases. It's not there's nothing to worry about. Everyone go to work. I believe a miracle is going to happen and the case numbers will go to zero. And he didn't want to let that cruise ship dock because he didn't want the numbers to go up. It's 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 absolutely ridiculous. And I absolutely agree with you that it's a you know rally around the flag in times of crisis. We unite behind our leader kind of thing. Uh, so I don't know. There's the, <laughs> fuck the world and fuck everything. You know, this is how it goes. Yeah. But on the one I was I mean, I was seeing I was seeing the one silver lining of this is like hopefully it it prevents trump from getting reelected but now i'm looking at these numbers and if we don't even get that out of it then this is even worse than we thought yeah i don't give a fuck <laughs> i hate trump but like honestly your contributor on our political pretty, podcast people yeah i i'm pretty sure that at this point poll numbers are about as reliable an indicator of who will be elected as bird entrails. Uh, there was that couple that died from drinking um, uh, fish cleaner. Fish tank, fish tank cleaner. cleaner. I don't think that Trump was actually culpable for that in any moral sense, but I do think that that's incredibly good fodder for uh, attack ads and like from a pure amoral political tactics standpoint, I do hope that Biden uh, does make hay out of that. But honestly, like, my feeling is pretty much this is the worst thing that we can expect to happen in the eight-year span uh, of uh, 2016 to 2024. So I feel like the damage from the Trump presidency is already pretty much done. And I say that, and of course, there's going to be like a fucking war with China earlier, early in 2021 or something. But uh, yeah, I don't see this as becoming that much worse. But also, like, to be fair to Trump, which I hate to do, but to be fair to Trump, the big parts of the government that really fucked this up were the CDC and the FDA, which are, they are technically part of the executive branch, but they're really more um, regulatory state than the presidency proper. And if Clinton was president, I'm not sure that the bad things that happened would have been that much worse. So I don't know. Fuck it. Fuck everyone. I think if we had drunk, I think if we had competent leadership, 
we at least would have gotten more of a head start on this. I don't know how much of a head start. I, I can't say exactly how much it would have improved things, but I think things would have been improved. Sure, but would the competent leadership like be the presidency or would it be the head of the FDA and the WHO and the um and uh the CDC and all of them which I is mean, substantially below the level of like electoral politicking. Hypothetically it could have been any of those people who stepped up, but if the president decided which, to do it, by the way, they would have been able to. By the way, I this might be ideology driven epidemiology, <laughs> but I am given to understand that the WHO that like Taiwan's response to coronavirus has been really, really good. And the WHO has been suppressing it because of political pressure from China, which we should look into and talk about next episode, because if it is happening, seriously, fuck those guys. Indeed. We'll look uh, we'll look at that for next episode. We're going to be doing a segment we're calling Troop Deployments. As we all know, politics is the mind killer and arguments are soldiers. So in that spirit, uh, we are all going to send a new soldier out on the battlefield. And David, why don't we start with you? So my uh, life has basically not changed at all from social distancing because I am an academic and don't go outside very much. So I'm doing something that I've been planning on doing since, like, uh, September 2019 or so. Uh, I have a, uh, a new model for Warhammer 40,000, which is a game I enjoy playing. Uh, recently, a uh, new model came out for the biggest, baddest orc in the galaxy, and I am squishing that model together with uh, a couple of chaos kits. Uh, this is going to be absolute word salad to someone who doesn't know 40K, but I'm squishing him together with a chaos spawn and a demon prince to make a model for Tuska Demon Killer. And I realize that means probably nothing to most of you, but I don't care. It's what I'm doing, and it's fun, and it's keeping me inside, and it's keeping me sane, and it looks great, and it's going to be great. And I can't wait until I can actually, like, go out and play a game with him. All right. Aniash, what do you have for us? Uh, I have that I kind of... Despite how awful everything is, it's refreshing to see everyone coming together. Uh, I, I like the whole unity is strength quote. And even though currently the person at the top of the unity is terrible, the just seeing all the unity happening is nice. The people making the fabric uh, face masks and sharing them, the people making their distilleries into hand sanitizer, making places... Uh, all the people online who are giving away products for free, giving away entertainment for free. It's, you know, it's it's heartwarming and I like it. And it reminds me that we can be great people. And I wish it didn't take something like a pandemic to bring it out in us. But it's nice to know that we still got that. Uh, insert the audio of the woman in the end of Hot Fuzz screaming fascist. <laughs> 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 All right. And uh, my uh, my troop today is going to be about universal basic income. 
Um, as part of the stimulus package, the government took a look around and said, hey, you know what the big problem here is? People don't have enough money. Uh, so what they did was give people money, uh, which I think is a very sensible solution to that problem. And uh, I think that is something that is applicable in a lot more than just emergency situations. A lot of our government policies are meant to address poverty. And the problem with poverty is that people don't have enough money. Um, and people not having enough money causes a lot of more problems in the country that government policies are there to try to address. And they do a poor job of it. And I think they would do a much better job if we just gave people money. Uh, I do have something to say about that whole the problem is people don't have money, uh, but I guess we'll leave it for next time. Okay. All right. Well, that's our show. This has been The Mind Killer. You are probably hearing us on the Bayesian Conspiracy feed, but we do should have a feed set up for this podcast if you want to listen along for our next one, and that, should, that will be in our show notes. Um, I'm on all the social media as W Fenza. Um, you can basically find me anywhere. Um, David or Anyash, do you have anything you want to plug or any social media you want to share? You cannot find me online. If you want to talk to me, send me a snail mail at Virginia. Uh, I would say you can also hear me over on the Bayesian Conspiracy, which is where right now we are going to be airing this as well. The first four episodes are going to be going up on the Bayesian Conspiracy, but after that, we're going to have a separate feed for the Mind Killers. So I encourage everyone who uh, is interested in hearing more of this after the two months go by to go and subscribe to that right now. There will be a link included in the show notes. Uh, and, you know, this this was a lot of fun, so I guess I'm going to keep on doing it. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. You can hear us again in two weeks. Same rat time, same rat channel. Smash this date.